the archives of Dr. Stephen Olford. It was preached during his distinguished ministry at Calvary Baptist Church in New York City. Our series from 2 Corinthians is entitled God's Call to Church Action. Today we're looking at the introduction to 2 Corinthians, our text, 2 Corinthians 5.18 through 6.10. Now, here is Dr. Stephen Olford. This morning we begin a new series entitled God's Call to Church Action. This series is based upon a study in the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. And as an introduction to the entire exposition of this epistle, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to chapters 5 and 6 this morning in order that we might understand what is its central theme and the unfolding of that theme throughout the entire epistle. 2 Corinthians then, chapter 5. Scholars have speculated that in all probability, Paul wrote at least four letters to the church at Corinth. The first communication has been described as the previous letter and is undoubtedly referred to in the first epistle, chapter 5 and verse 9. Paul there remarks that he'd already written to them concerning a very solemn matter, and that is to keep clean and not to associate with fornicators. Then followed what we know as 1 Corinthians. Next came what has been designated as the painful letter. A letter written in tears and deep travail of heart because of the disorders and misconduct that were going on in the church at Corinth. Finally came the second epistle to the Corinthians as we know it in our New Testament. There are others, however, who maintain that 2 Corinthians itself represents two epistles. And any of you who've been reading this epistle in preparation for this series will undoubtedly have been arrested by the fact that there is a change of mood that comes at chapter 10. Chapters 1 through 10 are jubilant, though Paul unfolds the burden of his heart, especially in the matter of the ministry. But from chapter, chapter 10 on to the end of the epistle, there's a severity and a strictness that comes into his language and spirit. And for this reason, many have believed that actually this represents the two epistles known as the jubilant letter and the painful letter. Now, whether or not these historical and textual questions can be finally answered makes no difference whatsoever to the authenticity and reliability of these two epistles as they have been preserved to us by the overruling providence of our God. I mention these matters in introduction because there are many students here and are many of our own people who desire to study with depth this epistle during these coming months. But as I repeat, these academic matters are ultimately irrelevant. It is clear from the study of 2 Corinthians that Paul intended this 
letter to be the outcome of his first letter as we know it today, 1 Corinthians. Titus and possibly Timothy had communicated to the apostles certain reactions concerning the reception of his first epistle. And as they told their report to the apostle, some of what they said rejoiced his heart. Other things they reported disturbed him profoundly and called forth the letter we hold in our hands today, this precious document. I myself have read it scores and scores and scores of times in preparation for this series. And I am pleading with all my congregation to do likewise and to be ahead of each lesson each Sunday morning as we discover its blessed and challenging message so relevant to our day. Now if the message of 1 Corinthians is God's call to church order, then the message of 2 Corinthians is God's call to church action. Unlike 1 Corinthians, this second letter is very difficult to analyze. It is so autobiographical, so emotional, that there is a sense in which there is very little system in it. Throughout its chapters, however, Paul pleads for action, action, action in the name of his God. Eighteen times over, he employs the word beseech or its variants in order to stab the members of the church at Corinth into action. He's dealt with a matter of order. Now he's dealing with a matter of action. The basic issues on which Paul desired action are summed up for us in the verses that were read to us this morning and form, in my judgment, the central theme of the entire epistle. I refer, of course, to chapters 5 and 6, 5.18 through 6.10 to be exact. Now, to understand these verses is to comprehend, in my judgment, the whole sweep of the epistle. And I thought that before we start with the very first chapter and the very first verse next Sunday, we should give ourselves to a review of the epistle in its entirety. And it's good that these verses should fall on a communion Sunday. Because it will be evident in a few moments' time that we're touching the very heart of our gospel and the very deep significance of what we celebrate at the Lord's table today. Let us then address ourselves to this portion of the letter and observe God's call to action. Will you turn then with me to chapter 5 and at verse 18. I want you to bring your New Testaments or use those supplied in the sanctuary Sunday by Sunday and follow through verse by verse as we expound this precious document. I want you to notice then that God's call to church action first of all is a call to proclaim the word of reconciliation. God's call to church action, whether viewing the church militant here upon earth, scattered over the five continents of the earth, or whether seeing the church localized, such as we are here at Calvary Baptist Church this morning, God's call to church action is a call to proclaim the word of reconciliation. 
Look at verse 19. God hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now the primary task of the church is to preach the word of reconciliation. However much this may be disputed by the advocates of the so-called social gospel, it still remains a biblical and indisputable fact that the first task, not the only task, but the first and primary task of the church is to preach a reconciling gospel. Now this word of reconciliation teaches us three tremendous things we need to understand here this morning or to call to your remembrance. Here is the first, that God is the author of reconciliation. God is the author of reconciliation. Verse 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The initiative and the work of redemption was taken by the Father. God took the initiative. It is not man who took the initiative, but God. In the words of Archbishop William Temple, all is of God. The only thing of my own which I contribute to my redemption is the sin from which I need to be redeemed. In fact, we go further and point out that the initiative is not even Christ's. It's God, the Father. Reconciliation is through Christ and in Christ, but from God. The desire, the thought, the plan, and the means to reconcile men and women to himself are all from God. Now, while it is difficult to explain it, it is nevertheless true and dogmatically true that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Here is a truth the world must know. God is not dead. God is not irrelevant. God is not disinterested. God has taken the initiative and has become involved in the redemption of mankind. And I can't understand how a church today won't rise in utter protest when that matter is challenged whether by scientists, philosophers, politicians, or even theologians. When I read a statement like this, I move to the very depths of my personality. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He took the initiative. He broke into time. He's involved with men and women. He acted on behalf of them in terms of redemption. Now, if that is not something that we need to preach and make known to the ends of the earth, I don't know any other. Good news. God is the author of reconciliation. Christ is the agent of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Observe carefully that it is through Christ and in Christ that God has accomplished reconciliation. As John R. W. Stott puts it, God has done this work objectively and decisively. Here is something not which God is doing, but which God did. 
At the cross of Calvary, God, through Christ and in Christ, removed the barrier that separated us from him in order that we might be reconciled to him. God refused to impute our sins to us. Why? Because we didn't choose to be born in sin. We didn't choose to be conceived in iniquity and born in sin. So God did not impute our iniquities to us in that respect. But instead God, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In saying that, my friend, we express the ultimate paradox of the atonement. How Christ could be made sin in order to slay sin is a mystery that no human mind can ever resolve. But the Bible says it, faith accepts it, and the miraculous exchange of righteousness for sin becomes available to all who repent toward God and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news that we must share with a sin-cursed world until a person knows deliverance from sin, I repeat, until a person knows deliverance from sin, any attempt to reform his life, to educate his mind, employ his talents, or even improve his environments becomes little more than a discouraging experiment. Why? Because man basically remains unchanged. This is the word of reconciliation that we're to proclaim. That God is the author of reconciliation. He has broken into time. He's become involved with human tragedy. That Christ is the agent that in a mysterious paradoxical manner in which we can never, never enter in since it's hidden even from the eyes of angels, God made him our blessed Savior to be sin for us who knew no sin. And in that moment of midday, midnight, in utter dereliction, he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in that moment, an eternity was compressed into a moment and he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Glorious news. Glorious gospel. So we see that God is the author of reconciliation. Christ is the agent of reconciliation. And wonder of wonders, look at it. Man is the ambassador of reconciliation. Verse 20, now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Fantastic as it may seem, Christian men and women have been given the responsibility of communicating the message of reconciliation to their contemporary age. To see the nature of this message and to sense its burden constitute God's call to church action. To withhold this message when it's so desperately needed by a world fast hurrying to destruction is both unthinkable and unpardonable. 
This then is one of the concerns which makes the apostle entreat and beseech and appeal for action, action, action throughout the pages of this second epistle to the Corinthians. But alongside of that is another truth found in our context here this morning. Paul makes it clear that God's call to action is not only a call to proclaim the word of reconciliation. That's basic and that's primary. God's call to church action is a call to perform the work of reconciliation. There is a work of reconciliation. Look, will you please, at verse 1 of chapter 6. We then as workers together with him beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. You notice that Paul has turned from his emphasis on the word of reconciliation to the work of reconciliation. Now needless to say, this has nothing to do with the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather the outworking of that atonement in terms of Christian living and preaching and serving. He sees God in action. Do you see it? He sees God in action through a fellowship of believers together with him. And he says, we then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Now, the occurrence of the phrase, the grace of God, the grace of God. And again, the grace of God in this epistle helps us to understand what constitutes the work of reconciliation in which we're to have a share. You see, Paul conceived of the grace of God as God in action. God as love, acting in grace on behalf of men. Grace is the great term, unmerited favor, in which God is seen in action. And we are besought to work with God in making known that grace. And not to do it is to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul conceived of the grace of God mediated through the cross of Christ as the dynamic for church action in three realms. And I want us to look at these three realms right now, for they comprehend the whole message of the epistle. First, there is the realm of Christian fellowship. The realm of Christian fellowship. Will you turn to chapter 1 and verse 12? Chapter 1 and verse 12, the realm of Christian fellowship. Paul says there, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you, Lord. Now the thought I want to lay hold of is that of the grace of God expressed in conversation, both in the world and more particularly in the church. Now as it happens, this is the first occurrence of the word conversation in this form in the whole of the New Testament. And Bishop Ellicott informs us that the essential meaning of this word is that of intercourse, which is carried on by talking and living together. Now, Paul's rejoicing 
is that such intercourse with simplicity and sincerity was enjoyed in the church at Corinth when it was first founded. Without this godly intercourse, he would have never rejoiced. And Paul saw that this intercourse, this sharing of life and talk and service together in the church at Corinth was undoubtedly the outcome of a heavenly fellowship which was established there at Corinth, a fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and with one another. In fact, in his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminds them that they'd been called into such a fellowship. You remember, God is faithful by whom ye are called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. However, let us face it, even though church action in its first dimension is through Christian fellowship, the grace of God mediated through Christian fellowship, something had happened at Corinth, as we shall see throughout this epistle, there had been ruptures in that fellowship and these ruptures had not been healed. There was a minority group, for instance, who had severed fellowship with the apostle himself. They wouldn't have anything to do with him. There was an excommunicated but repentant brother who had not been restored to the fellowship of the church. And there were divisions amongst the members themselves which had disturbed the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul says it's no good. It's no good talking about a gospel to the far ends of the earth if in your local assembly there is division. And so he concludes his epistle with these words and I'm talking about the second epistle. He says be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. The God of love and peace shall be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Now, my friends, there is nothing more important in the performance of the work of reconciliation than to restore and to maintain the fellowship of the local church. Only when brethren dwell together in unity does God command the blessing from heaven above even life forevermore only when brethren dwell together in unity does God pour out the oil of the spirit and distill the dew of the spirit until the fullness of blessing breaks through a local church to the neighborhood and behind the neighborhood to the city and to the world a study of evangelical re revivals and awakenings will reveal to any thoughtful mind that what God, what God can do when a church is not only united, but revived. Why one could spend a long time right on this point to show how such evangelical awakenings have touched not only personal life, not only social life, not only political life and national life, but through the sending out of missionaries even right out to global life. And God alone knows what could happen, what could happen in a local church like this if Christian fellowship were restored and maintained to that norm which is expected of any local fellowship that's in touch with the risen head. And Paul says we've got 
a message to proclaim, sure. It's the message of reconciliation. God, the author, Christ, the agent, men, the ambassadors. But with that word, there's a work to be done. And that work, first of all, through the grace of God, is through the Christian fellowship. And that Christian fellowship has to know a renewal and a restoration in order for God to move out through that local fellowship. The world cannot be touched in that redemptive sense, except through the community of redeemed people, the local church. So there is the realm of Christian fellowship. Secondly, will you notice, there is the realm of Christian stewardship. And if you turn to chapters 8 and 9, you have the second division of the epistle. Chapters 8 and 9. We'll just touch on two verses there that are key verses. Look at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do make known to you the grace bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Notice the grace of God bestowed. Verse 9. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now in these two verses, Paul gives us as a human, a human as well as a divine example of the grace of God in Christian stewardship. Just as the Lord Jesus laid aside his glory in heaven and involved himself in the poverty and tragedy of human life, so the churches of Macedonia captured by the Spirit of Christ, had given out of their deep poverty to the distressed and persecuted and privated, pri deprived people and saints in the church at Jerusalem. Christian stewardship involves men and women in the needs of others. I repeat that. Christian stewardship involves men and women in the needs of others. It calls for sacrifice of time, of money, of clothes, of energy, of food for the uplifting of humanity and especially of those of a household of faith. And nobody can understand this epistle and especially chapters 8 and 9 and be unconcerned about the suffering church across the world whether we think of it in Vietnam or behind the bamboo curtain or the iron curtain so called today or wherever it happens to be in the heart of Africa we've got to be concerned We've got to throb with his heart. We've got to sense the travail of a Savior in heaven whose, whose heart is aching. Aching for a suffering church today. Just as Paul's message of reconciliation brought those churches of Macedonia to realize there was a work to be done. Not only a message to preach, but a work to be done. And they began to gather money to send to Jerusalem for these poor, yes, depressed and distressed and persecuted saints and people in Jerusalem so you and I will recognize that that is a work of reconciliation it's the outworking of the very message that we preach no one can proclaim the reconciling word without being involved in the performance of the reconciling work and then we come to our third division this is the realm of Christian leadership, the realm of Christian fellowship, the realm of Christian stewardship, and thirdly, the realm of Christian leadership. And I want you to turn to 
12.9, just an expression there. Speaking to the depths of Paul's heart, God could say, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee. As we shall discover in the study of this epistle, Paul's authority had been challenged, his character had been defamed, and his ministry had been discredited. But the apostle rises to his own defense and declares that despite all the attacks and buffetings of the enemy, he had proved the grace of God to be more than sufficient. His authority was God-given and therefore called for recognition and respect. Now, my friends, we live in an age when divine authority and leadership are resisted on the one hand or rationalized on the other. And as a consequence, sin, crime, hatred are found on every hand. You can't investigate one single bit of trouble in our land today, whether in the church or out of the church, which isn't ultimately a repudiation of the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ in the world or in the church. And that authority has been mediated through leadership down through the centuries and particularly the history of the Christian church. And the reason why there was trouble in the church at Corinth is primarily because the authority of the great apostle had been completely and utterly disowned and discredited. But even in the midst of all the travail of experiencing that, Paul says, the grace of God in action made him available to God. And because of that, he was able to rise again and again until the solution came to the problem at Corinth. Only the grace of God released through Christian leadership can establish peace to our unsettled society. And my friend, I want to tell you that that constitutes a call to church action. Church action in Christian fellowship. And only when that's seen will the world outside say, see how these Christians love one another. They have the secret. Church action in Christian stewardship, a stewardship of time and energy and money and love in a world that desperately needs help, desperate help. Church action in relation to Christian leadership, a voice that's red, clear and bright across the nation. This is authority. This is leadership. Here is somebody to follow. The Church of Jesus Christ should be a voice in its own contemporary age. A voice that's clear. A voice that's read with no mistake. A voice that's understood. So we have seen that the call to perform the work of reconciliation covers these three realms of Christian fellowship, stewardship, leadership. Which are in point of fact the three main divisions of the epistle. For we shall discover that Christian fellowship covers chapters 1 through 7. Christian stewardship covers chapters 8 and 9. Christian leadership covers chapters 10 through 13. As we come to the detailed study of this letter, however, we shall see more clearly the unfolding of this central theme of 2 Corinthians, which is the reconciling grace of God in action through our local church. 
Now it only remains for me to point out that Paul insists that the proclamation of the word and the performance of the work of reconciliation are to be executed in a threefold way. And I want you to extend the reading just for a moment into chapter 6 through 10. That is to say verses 1 through 10 as we conclude this morning. This is a tremendous challenge in these closing moments. Paul says that the proclamation of the word of reconciliation, that's chapter 5, the performance of the work of reconciliation, that's 6-1, for we are workers together with him, and we beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. This word and this work, both in the proclamation and the performance, are to be executed in a threefold way. And I've put it in this fashion so that you may take it away and think it through. First of all, with the sense of urgency. The sense of urgency. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul links this quotation from Isaiah 49.8 with the thought of our being ambassadors and workers together with God and that in such responsibilities there's a call for immediate action. The time is short. The day of salvation is now. There must be a sense of urgency. I never tire of speaking to this subject of urgency because the Bible is full of it from cover to cover. And we can't look around us today. We can't read our headlines. We can't watch our television programs. We can't hear the pronouncements from our chief citizen without being aware of the fact that we're living in tremendous days, tremendous days. And we can say with the writer to the Proverbs, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And Paul stretches, as it were, into the Old Testament and picks out a verse by the inspiration of the Spirit, and he places it right there alongside of this task of ambassadors, this task of workers, in this whole business of reconciliation, and he says, it's urgent, it's urgent, it's urgent. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Not only in terms of the unsaved responding to the message. No. But also in terms of our getting the message out and doing the task and doing it now. And if you were to search your own heart here this morning, my friend, whoever you are, and were I to search my heart to its very depths, we'd both agree that what paralyzes our Christian witness and makes us so ineffective in our contemporary age is this inertia, this inertia, this indecision in our own lives to be clear-cut and to be urgent in making known our Savior's message and getting to the task of working out with our own hands the work of reconciliation. The sense of urgency. But along with this, will you notice, there must be the soul of purity. The soul of purity. Read verses 3 and 4. Giving no offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. 
This word offense occurs here alone in the New Testament. It means a cause of stumbling. A cause of stumbling. And Paul employs this special word in order to stress the need for lives that are pure and blameless in this ministry of reconciliation. Now history is replete with illustrations to show that the church has made its greatest impact on the world when she has been pure. So as preachers and workers, as ambassadors and as laborers, were to be ministers approved unto God. The sense of urgency must be matched with a soul of purity. And I don't know any epistle that's going to challenge us more on this issue than the second epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. In fact, you only have to cast your eye down a little further in this very epistle to read these words in the chapter that we're considering. Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be to you a father. Ye shall be my sons, saith the Lord God Almighty. That is not a call to isolationism. That's a call not only to urgency, but purity as we move back into the world with the only message that can reconcile men and women to God and with the only work that can bring them into a knowledge of what God has done in Jesus Christ through the grace which is ministered and mediated through our blessed Savior. A sense of urgency. The soul of purity. And finally, and perhaps most important of all, with that soul of purity there must be the stamp of quality. The stamp of quality and reality. Read on in verses 4, 5 and onwards. In all things approving ourselves the ministers of God in much, and I'm choosing my words now, patience, pureness, knowledge, long-suffering, kindness, the Holy Ghost, Love unfeigned, the word of truth, the power of God, the armor of righteousness. From personal experience, the apostle here enumerates the characteristics that constitute the stamp of quality when a life is subjected to afflictions, necessities, distresses, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, labors, watchings, fastings, and so on. For Paul, Christianity was the ability to react in any given situation and under any given circumstances as Jesus would react. To him, this was and still is the stamp of quality. Paul says you're not going to go out and preach that word of reconciliation. You're not going to cooperate with God in the work of reconciliation. You're not going to express it in Christian fellowship and stewardship and leadership without coming into collision with afflictions and stripes and distresses and all manner of testings. But whether or not you're real will be demonstrated. There'll be a stamp of quality about your life. Here then we have the call of God to church action. 
has taught in the second epistle to the Corinthians. It is a call to proclaim the word of reconciliation, to perform the work of reconciliation with a sense of urgency, the soul of purity, and the stamp of quality. Let us heed that call of God today and move into action before it is too late. Let us pray. Write these words upon our hearts, we pray thee, Father, and by the Holy Spirit seal the impact and impression made that we shall be part of those whom thou art calling into action to proclaim thy word and to perform thy work. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.